Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Well, here's a guy from the old days, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. But I'll still never be as old as you. <laughs> yeah, nah, nah, nah. There you go. <laughs> but not by much. Hey, listen, it is such a treat. I look forward to Tuesdays, as I've said many, many times, because um, I never know where you're going to go. <laughs> and sometimes that's really a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Sometimes I don't know where I'm going to go. <laughs> that's a good thing, too. Um, but anyhow, what are you going to tell us this morning? Okay, we're going to go back to the soldiers of the Old West. Oh, boy. And we're going to talk about the cavalry and uh-huh. uh, kind of some things that went on back then, the kind of uh, the typical soldier's life back then. So, mm-hmm. you know, the primary goal of the army back in the frontier was to control and subdue the Indians. So, you know, soldiers had spent countless days and weeks in the field patrolling, scouting, conducting campaigns. Uh, sometimes they'd be short patrols that lasted uh, a few months uh, or a few weeks. Uh, the size of the operation could be from a 10-man detachment to an expedition of really thousands. And the number of men sent out on a given assignment depended on, of course, what the purpose of the mission was uh, and the expected opposition, uh, as per General Custer. Uh, the typical scouting detachment usually consisted of about... Ten enlisted men, an officer, and a scout. Mm-hmm. Now, major field expeditions actually comprised hundreds, and actually sometimes even thousands of men, and could really cover hundreds of miles. Wow! Now, the soldiers, you know, they might encounter Indians sometimes within hours of leaving the fort, or they might march for weeks without seeing any signs. And in the end, all this patrolling and campaigning really failed more often than not. So. Really, a lot of these campaigns were really a waste of time and effort and a lot of saddle sore soldiers. But now, if you think of the logistics of a big campaign, of the really large ones, I mean, this was was quite an undertaking. You had the quartermaster. He was in charge of the equipment, the transportation, clothes. You had another department that's over the food. You had the medical department, of course, over the sick. You had the engineers that were over sometimes building bridges and roads. You had the signal corps that was over the communication, and then you had a traveling paymaster. So it was a, a huge undertaking. So, mm-hmm. But typically about 25 supply wagons accompanied uh, uh, about every 1,000 troops. So wow. 25 wagons per 1,000. Now, how much now, did these guys... Campaign, i, I got to ask you a question here real quick. Uh, okay. What was the motivation? What was the uh, inspiration to become a cavalry soldier? Because it didn't pay very much, did it? You know, it really didn't. Uh, I mean, I, I think a lot of times these were guys that just, uh, sometimes they guys that just wanted to see the West, and other times I think they just, they, they couldn't make a living. A lot of times, you know, the families were big, and there wasn't enough farm ground for the whole family. So some of the young men would just take off and, and join the military. I'll bet you there wasn't That's much that. motivation after Custer's last stand. Well, I'm, I'm going to talk about that <laughs> okay. a little bit. I mean, on these major campaigns, yeah, you know, Gatling guns and light artillery might be included in the wagon convoy. And Custer's military expedition, for example, he was actually supplied by 111 wagons. Wow. Uh, and he actually did have, I think, three Gatling guns, but they were never, they never caught up with them mm-hmm. at the time. So. Mm-hmm. But, you know, such large campaigns were not easy to supply. 
I mean, the supply wagons were sometimes impossible to get over the rough terrain, the, the hills, the mountains, whatever. So one solution, uh, in place of horses and wagons, they would decide that they would use pack mules. Well, of course, a, a mule is, is pretty useful, but, uh, you know, you've been around horses a lot. I don't know how many mules you've been around, but they can be a little challenging, to say the least. That is a great word. It's not the word I would have used, but it's a great word. <laughs> okay. Now, scouts ranged, you know, several miles ahead of the main body of the troops, and they would find the easiest passage through the terrain. And the cavalry usually was headed uh, headed the front of the main column with senior officers leading, uh, followed by the infantry. Now, both the cavalry and the infantry actually traveled four abreast. Uh, wheeled vehicles brought up the rear. Now, each day usually started early before light, so... Uh, that most of the day's march could be done in the morning. Mm-hmm. Well, at midday, they would stop, and they would have, like, salt pork, hardtack, coffee, and then they'd take off again, and by mid-afternoon, they would stop and set up camp because it took several hours to set up camp. Now, if they were in pursuit of some Indians, they some of them might push on and, and try to catch up with the Indians, But uh, and if they thought that combat was inevitable, they'd, uh, like I say, they'd just take, keep going and, uh, hopefully they had enough stuff with them to, to supply them. They usually only carried a blanket, maybe a, a few rations, maybe some extra, extra ammunition. Uh, they usually always carried some grain for their horses. Mm-hmm. So, But the cavalry, really in the early 19th century, the Army conducted some experiments. Some worked and some didn't. Uh, the first infantry or, or cavalry was formed in 1833. Then in 1850, Congress approved putting these guys on mules and of course like i said this didn't prove to be very successful and there's got to be some similarities don't you think uh, we could discuss that anyway uh, <laughs> i got a, I get a quick question for you though okay. and i don't mean to interfere with your chain of thought because i don't want to derail the the train here but um okay. when you talk about the infantry okay yeah. What kind of footwear did they have back in those days that would take the punishment of walking across the desert or through the rocks and everything? These guys must have had feet that were as tough as a, a mule's hoof, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've got that in here somewhere. I'll, I'll have to look. Because uh, I, I did an article, a uh, thing on here a while back about the infantry. I'll, yeah. I'll have to look on that one. Okay. So, okay, so back to the to our government. Mm. Uh in the 1850s, Secretary of War Jefferson Davis realized that sending these soldiers after Indians was not really effective. So, he, considering the similarity between the deserts of North Africa and those of the American Southwest, he thought, well, it might work to mount infantry troops on camels. So, in 1855, Navy ships transported 34 camels to Texas. And they formed the United States Army Camel Corps. Holy cow. And and a second shipment arrived in 1857. Well, camels could travel for days without water. They could survive on sagebrush and thistle. They could carry three to four times the load of a mule. But they did not endear themselves to the soldiers. Mm, I can imagine. They they sneezed, they spit, (laughs) they smelled terrible. And I guess the worst thing is they had soft padded feet, and that did not hold up to the rocky terrain. Oh. In the end, you know, the great camel experiment was abandoned, and the Army refu- returned to using horses and, and mules. So, 
the camel experiment didn't work so good. So you're going to tell me, I'm sure, that the uh, camel down by Mesquite, Nevada, right off the interstate, and then the ones down there at Cave Creek, Arizona that I saw when I was going on down uh, Interstate 17, they're all direct descendants of a failed cavalry idea of having the camels in the United States Army. I have heard stories of those camels down there. Yeah. Really? And I and I'm just guessing they've got to be, you know, they're not going to haul them back to North Africa or South Africa. I so wouldn't imagine. They probably just turn them loose on the desert. I don't Holy know. smokes, don't shoot your neighborhood camel. <laughs> yeah. So, let's look at the equipment that these cavalry guys had. Uh, routinely they would perform like a 30-day patrol covering about 5 to 600 miles. Uh, the typical rate of travel was about oh, 20 to 40 miles a day. Now, the cavalryman, he carried most of his equipment attached to a saddle. He had a wool overcoat, he had a poncho, he had a canteen, a blanket, ammunition, a few extra clothes, and they would carry a half of a tent. So when they camped, he would have to get together with another guy who had a half a tent. A half a tent? uh, Hopefully he didn't have an odd number of guys. I was going to say a half a tent? Now, wait a minute, explain that to me. It was a piece of heavy cloth, and when it was combined with... Another soldier, it made kind of a two-man shelter. Hmm. So <laughs> I don't know how they tied them together, but anyway. And then they also had a mess kit. They had a little bit of food uh, for several days, and they all packed this in their saddlebags. Uh, now, the other, the other thing, the cavalryman had to carry supplies for his horse. A uh, nose bag, a rope, a curry comb, spare horseshoes, uh, 10 to 15 pounds of grain, enough to for- feed his horse. Now, they also carried the rifles in a sling over their left shoulder. And uh, the strap was later replaced with a scabbard because, you know, you can imagine carrying that across your shoulder for miles and miles, and it just was uncomfortable. Yeah. Now, the original uh, Colt uh, handgun was carried in a holster that was across the uh, neck of the horse hmm. because they, they were kind of a big gun, I guess. That, yeah. Uh, uh, the dragoon model of, of a colt. Oh, that was. Uh, but after the Civil War, soldiers started switching them to to wear a belt holster. Yeah. Now, this is, I found this kind of interesting that the troopers carried their revolvers on the right side, <clears throat> with the butt facing forward and the barrel pointed behind. Mm-hmm. And the reason they did this is because on the other side they had their their uh, saber, and it was worn on the left hip. So. If they were using their saber in the right hand, then they could cross-draw their revival with their left hand and fight with both. Mm-hmm. So, so the troopers could also draw their guns with the right hand by, and I'm sure you've seen this, where they turn the wrist and the hand inwards, they grasp the butt of the gun, drawing it, and with a twisting mo- movement, and they call this the cavalry draw. Really? Have you heard of that before? I have, but you know, I'm just sitting here and I'm really worried about somebody that might be dyslexic or had a learning disability and they get in a gunfight and they draw their sword. <laughs> and try to shoot it. Yeah, that, that could be a problem. But uh, Now, this, having the butt of the, of, the, of the gun forward had another advantage. Uh-huh. Uh, handguns had a tendency to misfire. Oh, really? Now, yeah, and so if the revolver were accidentally discharged, the bullet would exit behind the soldier. Now, this was better for the soldier, but not always so good for the horse. I was going to say, you're talking about <laughs> lack of transportation here, dude. <laughs> yeah, but I guess at least the soldier didn't have a hole in his leg. You know, 
<laughs> so then we get to the saddle. Now, the saddle was a McClellan saddle designed by a Captain George McClellan. Yep. And it was designed really more for the horse's comfort than for that of the rider. Have you ever and sat in one of those? You know, I, I have, but it's been a long time. I was, where was I? Some museum somewhere. I've got a picture of it in front of me, and... Oh, man, it, it does not look comfortable. Oh, I'm telling you, uh, with my little fat cheeks, uh, referring not to my face, uh, in one of those McClellan saddles, I rode one one time about 10 years ago. I got on one, and I'll guarantee you how they could march for miles and miles and run on those saddles. Ooh, that yeah. hurts. <laughs> I mean, the seat was a wooden frame, Yeah. basically, you know, covered with rawhide. Yeah. Uh, and again, it was it was designed to save weight and be comfortable for the horse. But, yep. uh, and the stirrups were made out of wood, usually hickory or oak, and uh, they used kind of cheap material. So the saddle trees, the stirrups, all that wore out pretty fast. And uh, about two years was all they would last. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and you know, the cavalry were there, they were trained to sit in their saddles so they wouldn't have back problems and. Uh, but still, they encountered a number of health issues that we won't go into <laughs> from spending hours and hours in the saddle. Oh, come on, Dr. History. <laughs> Lay it out on the line for all of us. Oh, various health issues. Okay. <laughs> I'll leave that to people's imagination. Yes, would you? Pl Never mind. I had a joke I was going to say, but I'm not going to, so... <laughs> I mean, the Army was too cheap to get him good saddles. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've got a nice, uh, uh, severe saddle that I can ride all day and, and be fine. But anyway, now the cavalry horses, you know, they, they, there was a, a variety there. They had the Morgans, they had the Thoroughbreds, and they had the Saddlebreds. And the Morgan was not thought as good a riding horse as the Thoroughbred. Uh, and usually a horse cost about 90 to $140, and they were always branded with the initials U.S. on the left shoulder. And uh, now when you think about horses and the Indians, the difference is when it came to horses, the trooper had one horse. And so during a campaign, uh, the Indians had several horses. So they would, you know, switch horses and have a fresh horse. So they could always outrun, you know, the trooper's one horse. And uh, the other thing is the Indian ponies, they ate prairie grass and they lived off the land, uh, whereas the larger cavalry horses, they had to have grain. Mm -hmm. Well. That was all well and fine if you had grain, um, you know. And the other, and I guess the advantage was if they, as long as they had grain and corn, one thing or another, they, the cavalry horses were stronger all year round. But then again, if you ran out of grain uh, in the middle of the winter, your horses may be starving to death. And so, well, wait a minute. I have another question to ask. The great knowledge of you, Doctor History, when they went out on patrol these uh, cavalry units, did they take extra mounts with them in case of lameness? You know, that's a good question, because uh, basically they were assigned one horse. They were, they were responsible for its care, its feeding, uh, and, you know, in fact, if a cavalryman was caught mistreating his horse, uh, they would be forced to walk. Um, but, you know, and horses, you know, they got sick, they got injured, and some of them had to be shot, um, you know, some were pushed beyond their endurance. And, you know, the article here that I'm reading doesn't talk about uh, fresh horses, but, I mean, again, common sense, I would think they would have to have, 
you know, a, a few extra horses. Well, I would think, like, if you're going out to engage the enemy and you're leaving the fort and you're going out maybe 50, 60 miles, and then all of a sudden poor old Freddy's horse goes lame, what are you going to do and turn around and say, hey, Freddy, we'll, we'll call your mother and let her know what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that cavalryman all of a sudden became an infantryman. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, man, you every step out there in the rocks, you'd be worried sick that all of a sudden you'd be... Uh, the next target for the enemy. Right. Oh, and my well, goodness. Like I say, horse uh, diseases, you know, uh, injuries, uh, you know, broken legs. I mean, they, they had to happen. Yeah. So, again, I'm just going to assume that, that uh, the supply wagons maybe had a few horses tied on behind them. And I'm hmm. just going to guess at that one. Okay. So, but that's the story of the cavalry uh, guys and kind of kind of what they were up against and you're right they didn't get paid much and and considering what they put up with you know uh you know following particular individuals into battle such as our good friend general george you know well but, uh, i got another question for you and i know yeah. in your uh, great research that you've already answered this question and ready to just spit it back right at me um okay. food now when you're out there on um, a 20 or 30 day march and you're out in the wilds and everything else what about the food i mean come on hygiene was bad enough but the food yeah. i mean my goodness what did these guys eat how did they keep it i mean it must have been all rancid well uh, you know i usually they carried with them you know hardtack and coffee and, you know, maybe some salt and uh, meat of some kind. Now, for those uh, in the audience that don't know what hardtack is, go ahead and explain it, Dr. History. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll, 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 have to look, uh, I'll have to check my reference. According to what I've been told, hardtack was basically a petrified biscuit. Okay. That's what I've been told hardtack is, and I guess that you needed almost a Bowie knife to break off some and chew on it and everything else. That's yeah. what I've been told, that it was almost a um, petrified biscuit, hardtack, that you yeah. could take with you and it wouldn't spoil and it wouldn't get moldy or anything. But, oh, gosh, yeah. I can't wait to sit down at night and hear the coyotes <laughs> howling and have my hardtack. And salt pork. Oh, yeah. Salt pork. What that. a meal. Okay, I found something on the shoes okay. of the infantry. All right. Okay, they didn't have lace-up shoes. They wore boots when marching, and they usually tucked the trouser legs into their boots or uh, tied them up to keep their pants out of the dust and the mud and the snow. Yeah, and so, also to keep the snakes from going up their leg. Yeah, I yeah. So, but that's yeah. They they, they had uh, some kind of a boot. It wasn't a lace-up type. Yeah. And I can't imagine. Of course, you know, back then, they a lot of times they made them uh, to fit the individual. Yeah, but come on. They uh, weren't made for hiking 65 and 70 miles a day, okay. for heaven's sakes. There's another question for you. If you're in the infantry and you blow a sole on your boot, what in the heck? Are they going to have spare boots on a mule someplace? I mean, come on. That, that's, a, that's a good question, too. Yeah, I mean, see? You, you know, that's like losing your horse, you know, if you lose a boot. Oh, my goodness sakes. You know? Here's what I want to do next week. This is where okay. your research comes in. I want to talk about food and clothing for the for the military. These guys okay. had to be as tough as nails because, you know, I wear a ten-and-a-half boot, okay? 
Okay. Now, maybe if your supply wagon only has a nine, what do you do? Cut the toes out of the doggone thing? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Okay, okay. I've, got a, I've got a chapter right here in front of me on food. Oh, boy. So, so we'll we'll talk about that. All right, I'm looking forward and to maybe personal hygiene, which well, there wasn't I much. <laughs> I don't know if we want to get into that. Haircuts <laughs> and yeah. Well, we could also <laughs> fall back on problems caused by McClellan saddles if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to everybody's imagination. <laughs> Dr. Estrella, I just love this segment, and I, next week should be interesting because the food, you didn't exactly have a menu to choose from. Right. Oh, it was ugly. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes it's whatever you could get. Okay. So. We just had a text, and I think it was sent from Gina, and she says, uh, Bob Martin called and said that we'd been eating too many beans, <laughs> if he only knew. <laughs> <laughs> I got to run, but Dr. Ishri, God right. bless you, man. Thanks so much. You have a good day. Sir. All right, buddy. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.